You can turn in your Bibles once again to the book of James, James chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11, uh, though the text itself we'll be giving our attention to will be verses 9 to 11. James chapter 1, this is God's holy word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading, the hearing, and the sharing of his word this morning. If you looked in your bulletins, you might saw that this message is entitled, The Hilo Principle, um, H-I-L-O, right? The Hilo Principle. And if you, if you know what a Hilo is, perhaps you don't, it's basically, or well, is, a forklift. And it does what the nickname implies. It's a Hilo. So it allows you to bring things that are high and lift them low. It allows you to lift up low things and bring them high. It's very efficient, very useful to be able to use. And the text we're looking at today, it functions kind of like a high-low. It shows us ways in which the low are brought high and the high are brought low. And these principles, what we're going to see are what we're called the low principle and the high principle, they can have a profound effect on how we understand ourselves, our place in this world, and learn how to live with calm composure and, and repose in an increasingly anxious age. So we're going to look at the low principle first, then the high principle, and then we'll apply these first to our situation politically, and then secondly to ourselves personally. So I hope that sounds intriguing, and that, that you give attention to God's word. Okay, so first, take a look at verse 9. James 1, verse 9, the low principle. James says simply this, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So when James is referring to the lowly brother, who is he talking about? What's he talking about? Well, if you remember, James is writing largely to believers who had to flee Jerusalem due to persecution. So they had fled into these dispersed areas and were just joining these cities. And so they were basically refugees, leaving their homes, leaving their jobs and belongings. And so they had come into poverty and destitution. They're looking for work. They don't have anything. And the word lowly here, it's a metaphor, right? Being low, being low to the ground. But it primarily refers to a lowness of um, status in society 
or a lowness of rank, okay, a social lowness. Though it includes in it also the idea of being brought low due to grief or to poverty. And, and all those are in view here. That's the situation with these believers. They're, they're poor. They're desperate for work. And in that situation, they're liable to being easily exploited. And that's what's happening. They're being exploited by rich landowners. In James 2.6, he writes to the churches saying, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? In James 5, verse 4, he says, Of the rich, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He's saying there's an oppression from the rich to these poor refugee believers. They're withholding wages from them, not paying them for their work, knowing that they're so desperate They'll work anyways. And this would have been a situation for these believers of incredible discouragement, of such difficulty. They're in every way. They've been brought low. Their livelihood's gone. Their possessions away. Living in a low class, in poverty and destitution. Nothing to be proud of. No career, no savings, no established identity in the community. But even in this bleak situation, James looks to them and says there's something you can boast about. Something that is you can glory in. Not, not boast arrogantly, but something you can delight yourselves in. A glorious reality. He says you can boast in your exaltation. That is more literally in your height. You who are low can boast in your height. Now what, what is the height? What does it mean for them to boast in their exaltation? Uh, James doesn't go on to describe it right here. But he gives us an idea of what he is after in James chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So James, of the, James is saying that the wealth of the poor, the highness of the poor, is their richness of faith by which they've become beloved children of God, heirs of an eternal glorious kingdom. That's the highest rank they could have. Sons and daughters of the king above all kings. And so James is declaring the revolutionary truth that even though these believers are low in the worldly realm, they are highly exalted in the spiritual realm. And I say this is a revolutionary truth for this reason, because James knows that one's, in a sense, joy and well-being in life is largely dependent on one's self-conception, on the identities we wear and live in, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And James knows that if you wear lowness, if you wear that destitution as your primary identity, it's self-destructive. It, it leads to feelings of shame, guilt, despair, discouragement about yourself. And then it leads towards attitudes towards those who are rich and the powerful oppressors of contempt, anger, bitterness. There's devastating effects because the identities we wear affect our behavior. I couldn't help but think of Simba, 
in The Lion King. Uh, the Lion King was the first movie I ever saw in the theaters, so it's a special one to me. It's a great film. But in The Lion King, Simba has this tragedy, and through no fault of his own, um, he is lied to, and he imbibes an identity that really destroys his sense of self. And in his shame over this tragedy he's been a part of, he runs away. He leaves his responsibility and uh, flitters away his time in self-indulgence, in, in leisure, and is avoiding what he's truly called to do. And this shameful identity leaves him trapped in indifference, trapped in lethargy, uh, trapped in apathy. And the people he cares about, are, they are being oppressed. But what motivates Simba to the responsible action? It's when he's reminded of what his true identity is. It's when his father appears to him and tells him, you are my son and the one true king. And when that realization changes, the identity moves from one of shame to one of highness, that spurs action. Instead of hanging back in lethargy, he's running. Running towards what he's called to. Of course, running in slow motion with a, with a wonderful soundtrack in the back. But he's running. The self-identity has changed, and it responds with action. And a fundamental reframing of your personal identity from one of lowness to one of highness can have also a massive impact on your life. And James knows this. James knows that for these believers to which he's writing, if they are to live as mature believers, they need to frame their self-conception in terms of their exalted spiritual identity, not their identity in the eyes of the world. Because truly believing your status as a beloved child of the king and an heir of eternal glory, that fortifies your soul against those circumstances that would lead you to wallow in shame, in disgrace, to stop running the race of faith because of discouragement and despair. And so James is saying, he's really communicating to the church that the exalted status of the believer is fundamentally ennobling and encouraging and it's worth glorying in. It is to be gloried in. This is the low principle. The, ex, the spiritual exaltation lifts the low high. But now what about the high principle? Look again with me at James 1.9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, there, there's an interpretive issue we run into right here, and people are sort of divided on this. There's one school that think um, the contrast to the lowly brother is the rich brother. And so James is telling the rich believers that Though the low believers can glory in their highness in Christ, they can glory in their lowness um, in the gospel, that they've been humbled by their sin and really brought low. Um, which would then see this call as a positive. It's good for the rich to glory in their humiliation. But I think the better way to interpret it is to see the contrast not with the rich believer, but as a rich unbeliever. James explicitly avoids using the term brother here. He says the lowly brother and then just the rich. And what he's saying here 
um, he's using this idea of the boasting of the rich in his humiliation ironically. It's ironic. He, he's saying that um, this rich person has nothing truly to boast in except those things that will be his ultimate abasement, his ultimate humiliation. He so let the rich boast, but those riches that he thinks he has so much to boast in, they're going to be his demise in the end. And he says, he doesn't just say the riches of the rich will pass away, but it says this rich man will pass away himself in the midst of his pursuits. And I think this interpretation is warranted because James always in his letter sees the rich in negative terms. We saw they're oppressors. In chapters 2 and 5, he variously describes these rich people as oppressors, litigators, blasphemers, greedy, fraudulent, luxurious, self-indulgent, self-satisfied, unjust, proud, and boastful. They are oppressing the believers and boasting against them. And so James's encouragement to the church here is very similar to that which we read from the psalmist earlier in Psalm 37. The message being, fret not yourself because of evildoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. James is very explicitly picking up these Old Testament allusions about the grasses and the flowers. So these powerful rich ones, though they think themselves high now, they will be brought low. What they think is their boast now will ultimately be their abasement. And you notice James brings in the analogy of the field here, of those flowers, right? Have you ever been um, in a desert area and it doesn't rain much, right? But then when it does rain, all these little flowers spout out everywhere. The hillsides are covered, but then they don't last very long. These flowers shoot up and boom, they're gone. This is the analogy James is using for the rich here. Um, maybe you might think more in our area here in West Michigan, um, I don't know about you, but I really love when the cherry trees bloom in the spring. Uh, though my personal favorite is the magnolias. I'm a sucker for a nice magnolia. But the cherry blossoms, the magnolias, they're beautiful when they bloom, but how long do the blooms last? Those cherry blossoms, they last a couple weeks and then... Whew. And now imagine a, a proud and boastful cherry blossom. The cherry blossom is going, I'm so great, I'm so beautiful, I'm just a beautiful cherry blossom. And you would look at that cherry blossom and say, cherry blossom, don't you know that in about a week, you're going to be swept away by the slightest gust of wind, and you're just going to end up on the road to be driven over and squished into a pile of squishy blossoms. It makes no sense for the cherry blossom to really have a boast, considering its temporary nature. And so James is saying, let these rich ones boast, because in the end, the only thing they'll have to boast about is that they were temporary and fading and fleeting, grassy and misty. He says the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Just fade away. And again, this is a revolutionary perspective James is giving to these poor Christians. Not only are they lifted up to see their exalted status in Christ, but here they see that their oppressors, the powerful ones in the city, um, these people who seem so daunting and intimidated, they're nothing to be afraid of. They're no one to cower before. They're no one to envy. They're not worth holding in contempt. They're passing away. They're like a fading flower, a blossom that's there for a moment and then gone. This is the high principle. It brings the high low. 
And what this does for the believer is this principle provides a bulwark against envy, bitterness, and contempt. Who's envious of this blossom, this fading blossom? Um, Think of a, a caterpillar. A caterpillar that's feeling oppressed by the cocoon. And he allows the cocoon, his time that where he's feeling constrained, to get all bent out of shape, mad at the cocoon, frustrated, bitter against the cocoon that's oppressing him. You would say, caterpillar, don't you, don't worry. This cocoon that is so oppressive to you now, it's not going to last long. It'll fade away, and then you'll be the glorious butterfly, and this cocoon will just be a husk on the ground. The butterfly, the caterpillar doesn't need to fret himself about the cocoon. So this high principle, what it does, it makes those fearful high low. It takes the air out of the sails of resentment. And instead of having, instead of the believers having these visceral reactions against those in power against them, that reaction is replaced with a calm composure. The threat is really not that great. The glory of these people is but for a moment. Um, I, I tried a while back to I did a very bad job, but to try to hang up some curtains in my wife's and I bedroom, and inevitably in the middle of the night, the curtains fell down with a crash and a bang, and I jolted out of bed, heart racing, wondering where the intruder was, ready to jump up and defend my family, and after a second, we realized, oh, it's just the curtain. My terrible job putting it up, it fell down. And I think, what did I have to worry about? I'm all flustered and ready because I thought the threat was greater than it was. It was just a curtain. And that's what James is doing for these believers. These, these people that they're feeling are their main terror in life, you don't have to freak out about it. You can be calm because they're just curtains. They are ultimately of no consequence. They will fade away like a mist. So why fret about evildoers? The low principle lifts the believers up. The high principle brings the proud low. And these two principles, they function like bifocal lenses that the, that the believers look through. Two ways to see the world, to see their highness in Christ, to see the earthy mistiness of their oppressors. And what that allows them to do is to live unblusterable lives, unflappable lives of faithful obedience. These are spectacles of wisdom, that allow the Christians to live according to the wisdom of James 3, to be peaceable, pure, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. We have the low principle. We have the high principle. Now I want us to, to, to consider how do we apply this to ourselves and our situation. Um, I first think there's a fitting application when we consider the high principle and apply it to our political situation which always makes everyone a little nervous, right? I think there's a direct application here. Okay, so we don't often think of our society as one really marked by classes and ranks and strata, but in, in many ways, it is. And both sides of the political spectrum, they play off of conceptions of low and high in order to garner momentum. Because those who feel they are seen as low by others who consider them high, they respond with um, contempt and movement. Okay, so here, here's an example. On the left, the ones they see as high 
are the CEOs, the billionaires, who they feel are looking down on the marginalized as lazy, exploiting them with low wages, poor working conditions. Um, these corporate interests that lobby the government only for themselves, not worrying about the common man. And so they hold these rich people in contempt. They think they are the problem. They're bitter against them, okay? On the right, the conceptions of high and low are a bit different. Um, on the right, the, the high are not really thought of as the rich business people, but as the liberal elites. The, not the CEOs, but the university professors and the journalists who are high in their own opinions and look down on those with conservative and religious values, who consider them low and uneducated, backwards and regressive. They say those are the high, those are the low. And this feeling of intellectual oppression provokes these feelings of bitterness and contempt for educational and for media elites. And this poses a huge problem for us because a culture that is marked primarily by mutual contempt and resentment, one side towards another, is one in which productive dialogue is impossible, mutual understanding and necessary compromise become unthinkable, and that's a society on the verge of breakdown. Contempt. Studies have shown that the number one predictor of the demise of a marriage is the existence of contempt. Contempt for the other person. Once there's contempt, that seed of contempt, you're in a very, very difficult place. And so we live in a culture that's marked by contempt all around us. And don't be deceived because this has infiltrated the church as well. Some have a fear about what powerful business people will do to their countries and lives. Others have a fear of what powerful university professors and politicians will do to their country and lives. The, the, the left has contempt for the rural, the conservative, for business, for religion. On the right, there's contempt for elites, for journalists, politicians, and professors. And because of this, we desperately need this text. Because there's a constant temptation to each one of us to despise those who are thinking themselves high. We love to despise the high. But this text reminds us that as Christians, we have no need to fear or to fret. No need to despise or villainize. Because though some consider themselves high, though some might consider us low, they're no ultimate threat in the kingdom of God. Verse 11 says, they will pass away in the midst of their pursuits. These powerful ones that cause so much consternation, th these powerful ones are ultimately unsubstantial. We have the internal in inheritance. So what can man do to us? We have the assured victory of whom shall we be afraid? So once again, as the psalmist said, fret not yourself because of evildoers. They're curtains that fall in the night. Don't be controlled by the fear of man. Don't allow yourself to be controlled by hatred towards any person. Don't hold anyone in contempt. Harbor no bitterness in your heart. Remember the words of Peter in 1 Peter 2.17 where he says, commands us, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. They will pass away in the midst of their pursuits. This allows us to be unflappable. 
to be a people of peace and composure in increasingly contemptuous times. That's what will mark us off as the people of God who show forth the wisdom, of a, the wisdom from above, peaceableness, gentle, gentleness, openness to reason, fullness of mercy, and good works. I do think the primary application of the, this text is to these external forces, this external highness and lowness, but I think also a fitting secondary application is that we can think of these conceptions of high and low in each of us individually. Because whether we think we're low or high or in the middle on the social spectrum, we're all sloped. We all have parts of our lives that we feel kind of low about, and we have parts of our lives that we feel kind of high about. And so when you consider your own life, you might feel low and ashamed when you consider your health, maybe your looks, your finances, your career, your parenting, your purity, whatever it might be, you might feel low. But in other areas, you might feel high and proud, proud about your looks, your education, your career, your wealth attainment, your success, your parenting techniques, your intellect, whatever the case may be. We all have areas we feel high and low, and so it's important for each one of us to be able to imbibe and apply this high-low principle to each one of us. Okay, so for, first, let's consider those areas where we might feel proud, compare ourselves to others, and kind of get a bit of an ego boost when we consider about how we're above the curve on this. When you're feeling high, remember that the flower falls, the beauty perishes. You came from dust, and to dust you're going to return. The history books aren't going to write about you, in a few generations, your name's going to be forgotten. So what do you think you're so high and mighty about? Isaiah 2.22 uh, gives us this advice. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? And think of that for yourself. Stop having so much regard for yourself. Of what account are you? We're a fading flower, a grass that springs up, here today, gone tomorrow. So when you feel high and mighty and proud, remember your temporality, your smallness, your grassiness, your dustiness, your mistiness. Uh, there, there's a great scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Horse and His Boy. And in this book, there's a horse named Bree. And Bree, he grew up in Narnia where there's talking horses. But at a young age, he was taken away to a land where there weren't any talking horses. But he grew up as a smart talking horse. He had, he had to hide it. And he was pretty proud. He always thought he knew best. He thought he was the best kind of horse. But as he's about to make his way into Narnia, he's, he meets with Aslan the lion. And here's how Aslan the lion speaks to Bree, this proud horse. Aslan says to him, you must learn to listen to sense. You're not quite the great horse you would come to think from living among these poor dumb horses. Of course you were braver and cleverer than them. You could hardly help being that. But it doesn't follow that you'll be anyone very special in Narnia. But as long as you know you're nobody special, you'll be a very decent sort of horse, on the whole, and taking one thing with another. As long as you know you're nobody special, you'll be a very decent sort of horse. When you feel high, remember this principle. 
And remember also that this principle isn't applied to the areas you feel low in, right? That would just lead to greater shame. This is applied, this medicine gets applied to the illness of pride in your life, the things you feel high about. You need to remember you're nobody special in those areas in which you feel so proud. That you might, as James says in chapter 5, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time, he would exalt you. We need to learn to apply the high principle to ourselves. But more importantly, perhaps, is we need to learn the low principle. The thrust of this passage really comes to those who are lowly. It's written to these lowly, poor believers. And perhaps you've been brought low due to your sin, due to the sin of others, due to circumstances beyond your control. Perhaps you feel like you don't measure up, like others look down on you. You feel like a failure. And I'll let you in on a secret. Everybody feels like a failure in some part of their life. Everybody feels like a failure in some part of their life. But these things that make us feel low, they only have power over you to the extent to which you allow them to become markers of your identity. You allow them to tell you who you are. You allow them to shape you instead of allowing the truth of God's word to shape you, the truth of your identity in Christ. So when you think, I'm worthless, I'm a mess, I'm a failure, you need to know that these are not the true identities of the child of God, but these are imposterous thoughts. These are fraudulent thoughts. And so when tempted by low thoughts, you need to remember your exalted position, your highness, and take glory in it. This is actually the imperative command in this passage, is let the lowly brother rejoice in his exaltation. It's not optional. You need to glory in your exalted position in Christ. You need to rightly consider your true identity. And you need to be constantly reminded of this. That's partly why we worship together every week to be reminded again and again of who we are in Jesus. And you need to learn the habit of reminding yourself every day of who you are as an exalted person in Jesus. Because in Christ, the believer can declare with confidence that I am a beloved child of the king. I am a king and a priest to God. I'm an heir of salvation and eternal life. I'm a servant of the king of kings. I'm destined for the resurrection. I am loved with an everlasting love and blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. Isn't that amazing? That is the exalted position of the believer. Incredible blessings behind, before, in front, all around, blessed with every conceivable blessing. But what's the source of these blessings? Where do they come from? All these blessings come to the one who is in Christ. All these blessings find their source in the infinite fountain of Jesus Christ. And through faith in him, you are united with him in his death. And so you are forgiven, cleansed, dead to sin. But through faith, you're also united with him in his resurrection and so renewed and empowered and awaiting future glory. Every high blessing of salvation comes through the gracious union we find in Christ by faith. And this, these blessings are enjoyed simply by trusting who Jesus is as the Son of God and what he's done for lowly, very low humans like you and me. And so to Jesus be praise 
honor, glory forever and ever and ever to all generations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we only scratch the surface of the blessings we have in Jesus, the eternal, infinite blessings to the child of God. We're like, it's like, Lord, we're trying to empty the ocean with a spoon. We know not the vast resources of your love and grace, and no, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no one can imagine what you have in store for those who love you. If, if we know our exaltation now, Lord, much more will we experience it in the new world. Lord, and you've brought all this to us through Jesus. Help us to trust him more, to see who we are in him, and remind ourselves of who we are in him every day. Lord, that we would learn to live lives unflappable, composed, full of strength and perseverance in a hostile age. Help us to truly live as your people, as mature believers, trusting in Christ, walking by the Spirit, knowing we are ever loved by our wonderful Heavenly Father. We pray all these things for Jesus' sake and his, in his name. And all God's people said, Amen.